Let's uh, stand and read the word together this morning. I hope, you, again, that you got a chance to read it yourself this week. But I think as we stand and read these words, we should be reminded of what Christ did for us. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who is dead is freed, who has died, sorry, is freed from sin. Now we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live also with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is true, that Christ did come. He died once for all, that we all could be free from sin, and Lord, that we could magnify him and see your holiness and your your love for us. And we just pray that this morning your holiness, your call to our holiness, your grace, your character would be made true, and Lord, that your words would be spoken through me. Lord, it's only by your grace that we're here. It's only by your grace that I can even speak and understand your word. So we just pray that your spirit would open our hearts to hear your word. Give us, Lord, spiritual ears this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. The year was 1833. Many of you probably don't know what that year is all about. But if you were a slave in the British Empire, you remember that date clear as a bell. Because in 1833, in August of that year, the British Parliament passed the Slavery Abolition Act. And it made, effectively, slavery illegal in the British colonies. But imagine this morning that you are a man by the name of George Anil, uncle, spelled very strange to pronounce. He was a slave in, at the Bog Estate in Jamaica. His master was the grandson. He had, the grandson had inherited this estate, and George Uncle would have, upon hearing this news, been greatly overjoyed. 
as you can imagine. You know, I don't know how long it took for the news to reach Jamaica from England, but I have a feeling the next ship that arrived in Jamaica bore good news. So, on August 1st, 1834, this law came into effect. George Onkel probably stood there as they read this declaration from that act that said, All and every persons who on the said first day of August 1834 shall be in holden slavery within any such British colony as aforesaid shall upon and from and after the said first day of August 1834 become and be to all intents and purposes free in discharge of and from all manner of slavery and shall be absolutely and forever, I've never heard this word before, but I'm sure someone knows what it means, manumitted. I mean, I'm assuming set free, emancipated, I'm not sure exactly, I should have looked it up better. And the children thereafter to be born to any such persons and the offspring of such children shall in like manner be free from their birth. And slavery shall be and is hereby utterly and forever abolished and declared unlawful throughout the British colonies, plantations, and possessions abroad. Can you imagine George Uncle, this man who only four years prior was thrown into a workhouse because he was preaching the gospel to other slaves? This man, he probably was standing there hearing this declaration of freedom and thinking, wow, I'm free. I don't have to live in fear of preaching to my brothers anymore. Or maybe even, the sad thing is, in 1834, this act really didn't take effect in Jamaica because the Jamaican plantation owners set up apprenticeships. They said, well, these people need to be educated so that they can survive outside of the plantation. So it wasn't until 1838 that he truly experienced freedom. So this man who was thrown in prison, not prison, but a workhouse, I mean, just, it was a penalty. He had to work Worse than plantation work. It wasn't, it wasn't good news because he was preaching the gospel to his, his brothers in slavery. And so, in 1838, the real day when this declaration truly took effect in Jamaica, and it was not two months after the ascendance of Queen Victoria. And many... I don't know the history completely, but many say that it was because of Queen Victoria that Jamaica truly experienced freedom from slavery. Because within two months of her ascending to the throne, on August 1st, 1938, there was a huge festival, a huge celebration of freedom. And from that day forward, guess what? The slaves were free in Jamaica. 
And so on the 50th anniversary of her reign, the people of Jamaica, the African slaves who have been set free, and, and if George Uncle was still alive, we don't know much about him. If he was still alive, he would have been singing this song. Jubilee, Jubilee, this is the year of Jubilee. August morning come again, August morning come again. This is the year of Jubilee, Queen Victoria, give, me, give we free. Isn't it interesting? We've been set free from slavery to sin, and oftentimes we don't give our ruler glory. Can you imagine if on 19, August 2nd, 1938, George ran into a friend who he was on the plantation with, and his best friend said, hey, George, what are you going to do today? Oh, i got to go back to this plantation. Got to get back to work. Would his friend have looked at him? What is wrong with you? We've been set free. Why are you going back into slavery? Don't you think? His friend would have thought he was nuts, crazy. And that's what Paul is saying here. I feel like this illustration really gives us this picture that if we have been set free, why do we want to go back into sin? And that's the whole point of this message today. And the, the question that I have, which is also the title, is grace, a license to sin? So the question that's raised is actually raised by Paul. If we look in verse 1. What shall we say then? In light of what we just see, saw, we've been set free from the law. We've, we've got a new ruler and, and king, Jesus Christ. We have righteousness through Christ. We've been justified by faith. So if that's true, what shall we say then? Because he, he had just talked about how when the law came, grace increased because it exposed sin for what it was. So maybe the question that his readers, or us today, could think of is, well, if, if the coming of the law made grace even greater and, and made it seem so much greater, then shouldn't we just sin more? That's the question he's asking. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? I mean, there's some who would say yes in the church today. And we see it, I, I mean... One of the prime examples is there's, there's a, I'll say pastor, um, I, I don't know how to say his first name, but it's Tadre, oh man, his last name is hard too. Anyways, this man, he committed adultery while a pastor in marriage, then he walked away from the faith, came back and married while having a relationship with a woman, married another woman, and he's in pastoral ministry. Some people are sitting under his message today. And he says, well, grace is free. Have you met someone that thinks that this? I have. 
We've all met someone that says, well, God's grace is greater. I'm not saying that God's grace is not great, but it's not what we think it is. And I'm going to go back to a quote that I read, I can't remember how long ago, from one of my favorite books on this topic uh, by Bonhoeffer. And he says, again, I want to see, define these two things. So there's two definitions of grace, and I like what he says here. He says, what we mean by cheap grace is the grace which amounts to justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Toils of sin. Doesn't that sound a lot like slavery? Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. That's one definition of grace. That is what the world and liberal Christians cling to. But this is what the gospel actually says. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods it is the kingly rule of christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble it is the call of jesus christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. That's grace. It's not living in sin. We're, we're not getting under grace as though it were some umbrella that allows us to sin. I think there's often this expression, a license to kill. Why do we use that? It, it describes secret agents like the popular Bond series movies. There's actually a movie, I think, by that name. But they say, well, these guys have a license to kill. They can kill whoever as long as they do it in the name of their government. And that's the unfortunate thing. Many people treat grace like that. It's a license to sin because it, it's for the good of the government of Christ. And that doesn't make any sense. How does God's kingdom get glory in this? And so... What does Paul say in verse 2? May it never be. He doesn't say, oh, there might be opportunity. There may be a time when sin could actually be a good thing. No. Paul says clearly, may it never be. Why? This is the big question. Why? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? So my first point today, or the main point of today, if, if you get anything out of today, it's grace is not a license to sin. That's the main point. And then underneath that we have, we are dead to sin. That's why. This is what we really see in uh, verse 2 and verse 3. We cannot be both alive and dead. Could you imagine... Jesus, he's coming to 
Mary and Martha, Lazarus has died. He's been in a grave for three days. Could you imagine Jesus coming to Mary and Martha and say, Are you sure that Lazarus hasn't sinned in the last three days? Can you imagine that? Do you think before Jesus got to the grave, did he say, uh, Hey, we need to make sure that Lazarus hasn't sinned first because we can't raise him from the dead if he's been sinning this whole time. That would be ludicrous. That'd be asking, that's like asking a dead man to bury his own grave, bury himself, dig his own grave. We cannot sin if we're dead. And that's what he's saying is we must die. If we have not died, as it says, there's a problem. Because if we're dead to sin, why would we go back into it? Why would we continue to live under its reign of terror? Like a despot that we talked about last week. Remember, sin ruled in death. Verse 21 of chapter 5. Why would we want to go back to that? Just like, why would a slave want to go back to slavery? It doesn't make sense. Why would we want to go back? So if we have have died to sin, why would we still live in it? That's that's his whole that that's how it, it's a question, but it's really the answer. That's the answer that he gives. And then to clarify, he says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Isn't that interesting? He uses baptism as a a picture, a portrait of what happens in us. If you think about a baptism... You are being immersed, despite what one, one might say. The word that we use for baptism in the Greek, we just transliterated it. And it always means to be completely submerged. They used it in the olden days to describe submerging fabric in purple dye. We see baptism in the Old Testament are types of that. Noah, Peter refers to it. And Paul in Corinthians refers to Moses coming through the Red Sea as a baptism. And I like how John Bunyan, he, he points to the new heaven. Remember the crystal sea that the, the pilgrim's Christian, he, he comes to the river. What is it? The river of death. He has to go through it to get to the other side. And it's like a baptism. When he gets to the other side, he thinks he's going to drown, but Jesus comes and gets him. 
He thinks he's going to drown, but he makes it to the other side. It's like a baptism. We see this imagery all through the Old Testament. We must die. This is my second point. We must die. Or life will not come. It sounds like a paradox, right? Must die to live? I think that's why baptism is so important and what it represents as a Christian. We are telling the world, I'm dead to sin. Does that mean that we're sinless? No. But I am no longer going to give myself to sin as a slave. I'm not going back to the plantation where I was destroyed, where my children were taken away from me, my wife was sold Whatever it may, can you imagine wanting to go back to that? But that's what we're saying here. If we want to be back in sin, we might as well be slaves. We're giving total control to sin. Why would we want to live in it again? So if we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we've been baptized into his death. And this is necessary for us as believers to be baptized into his death. Because baptism, like I said, it signifies our death. It's, it's interesting. It's, baptism is two things. It's a funeral and a resurrection party at the same time. I think, I think baptism, you should at least count to three before you pick them back up. Right? At least three days, so... We can't, we can't put them under for three days. That be, wouldn't be safe. But, you know, we can count to three. Um, they'll survive. Work on your breathing techniques. But there, that's the thing. It should be, we shouldn't be like, let's get them back out of the water really fast. Like, it needs to be, it needs to picture what Christ, what we're, we are demonstrating to the world, our death, our, our union with Christ and His death, and His resurrection power in us. That's why baptism is such an important thing for believers. Does it save? No, it does not. But if you ignore the command to be baptized, I think that's a sign of a heart problem. If we are unwilling to be baptized, that's a heart problem. Because we must be like Jesus. So we have to find that unity. He's, he's our representative, as we talked about last week. If he's our representative, don't we want to be like him? Don't we want to live in his likeness and, and seek to follow his example? Did Jesus get baptized? Yes. Was his baptism for forgiveness of sins? No. He didn't need to be forgiven. He was a forerunner, our representative, our our example. So, why is it so important that we die? And I said this for my, sec- my, my second point. Death must come or it will not. And we see that from verse 4 to verse 10. Verse 10. 
Therefore, we, this is really important, we, Paul's talking about himself and his readers, and we can apply that to ourselves because he's talking about believers, period. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. What? Again, baptism is portraying our burial with Christ. Our reunion, commu- not reunion, communion in, in that death. Into, through baptism, into death. Why is this so important? Well, we have a purpose statement here. So that... As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If we are not buried with Christ, if we are not, again, I'm not saying that baptism is required for salvation. What I'm saying is this picture, this is, Baptism pictures what has already happened, right? What God has already done. That's why it's for believers. So, that baptism is picturing our burial with Christ, our death to sin, the old man, the crucifying of the flesh. There's so many different terms we can use to describe it. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so just as Christ has new life, he's not in the grave anymore. By what means? It says by, by which informs us that this was the agent of that resurrection. By the glory of the Father. The majesty of the Father. That's how He was raised. So to us, so to we might, are enabled to be just like Him. That's my translation. Walk in newness of life. If we are unwilling to die, we cannot live. If we are unwilling to die to our sin and not submit ourselves to that slavery again, then we cannot live. Period. If we want newness of life, we must be buried with Him. Four, verse five. Further explanation here. When we see the word four in in the Bible, oftentimes... That is, especially in Paul, Paul loves this, he's typically saying, he's giving more explanation to what he's already said. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, okay, so if, this is a big if, if you've been united with him in the likeness of his death, then... Or certainly then, we see the word certainly here. This is an if then. If this is true, then this is true. That's what Paul is saying. If then, certainly, 
we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. See that? See the picture and the, 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 the language that Paul is using? That we have this freedom now. We are now resurrected with him in his manner. We are no longer dead. We're dead to sin. But now we're alive to Christ. And, and Paul's really going to get at that at the last parts of this book or this chapter, chapter 6. But if we're, if we're dead with Christ, then now we're alive to Christ, or sorry, dead to sin. Now we're alive to Christ in righteousness. We aren't to stay the way that we were. We aren't to go back, as I have mentioned again, to the plantation of sin. When we die like Christ in, in our portrayal and baptism, when we become believers, that's what's happening. We, we're repenting and surrendering our lives to Christ. We are crucifying the flesh. And that's why we're, have, we're called to crucify the flesh daily. To not let that, our, our old man come back from the grave. As long as he's in the grave, he's not going to get any victory. But if we are not crucifying the flesh, then how can we be united in the likeness of Christ's resurrection? So he said this, and in verse 6 we have kind of an explanation, but... So since we know this, since we know now that by becoming united with him in the likeness of his death, that we are also in the likeness of his resurrection, since we know this, that our old self was crucified with him, Paul is hammering this point away, that our old self was crucified with him in order that, if you see the words so that or in order that in your translation, almost every time that's a purpose like, this is the purpose of God in this. So, the reason why that God calls us to die, or ourself to be crucified with Him, or from verse 5, to be united with Him in the likeness of His death, is so that, or in order that, our body of sin might be done away with. I think that's the best news that we can get. Just as when George heard that not, not only was he not going to have to be a apprentice anymore, but he was totally free. Free to do what he wanted to do. Maybe he wanted to go sit on the beach. He probably was hungry, so he probably didn't. Maybe he wanted to go right. Maybe who knows what he maybe he wanted to go preach the gospel. He was free to do that now. He wasn't under the the dominion of his taskmaster anymore. And so too, when we die, when that old self is crucified with Christ, our body of sin 
is done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin, we see there at the end of verse 6. We don't have to be in sin anymore. We don't have to live as though sin is our taskmaster anymore. The death that reigned in our sin state is no longer ours. We're free. You see that? So that. Again, it, uh, it's, it's so that our sin will be done away with. The, the body of our sin is done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. So it's a compound purpose that we see here. If we're dead, we can't sin, right? If we're dead to sin. It's when we open the doors, when we allow our minds to wander. Isn't that how it starts? You, you read James. It starts here. What are we thinking about? What are we looking at? And what do we think about what we're looking at? And when we dwell on it, eventually it's going to bring sin. Period. If we allow sin to dwell, to our, our bodies, our body of sin is done away with. We're no longer slaves of sin. I wish there was a song about this. Oh, wait, there is one. Everyone, know, everyone knows no longer a slave to fear. I think there should be a, a, better, there's a better song. It's an old one. It's an old hymn. I think we could sing this. Do you, do you think 50 years on, walking with Christ, we could, just as those Jamaican slaves sang... We could sing this song to our sovereign Lord and Savior. Once in sin I served a slave in suffering and affliction. Sin once held me captive, bound me, lorded over me. Struggling vainly to escape, I groaned in desperation. Unaware that Jesus had set me free, His wondrous grace has found me. From sin's bondage I am free, I am drinking living water. Salvation's bounteous feast. Praise God, what riches, oh what sweetness. Overflowing joy and praise. Oh hallelujah, I am saved by grace. I'd hope we could sing that song with fervor and joy. Just as a slave, 50 years. He's, can you imagine? Let's say you grew up in that, that same plantation. And you had seen your parents sold to other plantations or your siblings. But now you get to see your children grow up with you. You get to enjoy the wife of your youth the entirety of your life. You're no longer, they're no longer stolen from you, taken and sold somewhere else. What joy! would fill these people's heart 50 years after seeing their freedom to see their generations. Because when a, when a slave was sold, that wife could have been sent to another island, definitely another plantation, maybe even to the United States where that 
person end up being a slave much longer? At least 30 years, approximately. I think sometimes we forget what God has done. That we were really, we were slaves to sin. We were totally in bondage to sin. There's an illustration that I like to use. Slave is like a car, and you're chained to it. Or sin, sorry. It's like a car, and you're chained to it. And it is dragging you to hell. You're trying all you can to get get off of it, but you're chained. There's no hope. Unless somebody breaks those chains and sets you free, your eternal damnation is coming. But when we are set free, why would you follow the car that's been dragging you down that street willingly? Often they train elephants. When they're little babies, they start with a big old chain, right? That way the elephant doesn't think it can defeat it. And slowly but surely in its life, they decrease the thing that's holding. To eventually, it's just a little bit of twine and you have this huge, ginormous elephant that's held by a twine on a stick. And the moment that that elephant feels a tug... It stops. Why? Because its entire life, it has never been able to break that chain. It doesn't matter how big the chain gets. That elephant is completely, complete bondage. And it's just a little bitty piece of twine. Oftentimes, I think as, as believers, we forget. We're just like that elephant. Whether our sin is great or small, we are... In total bondage, we cannot be set free unless Christ comes and dies and we are united with Him in His death. That's the only way we're going to experience resurrection life if we have died to sin. Verse 7, further explanation of uh, verse 6, so we see here in verse 6, we're no longer to be slaves of sin. Why? How is that possible? For he who is dead is freed from sin. Just like when Lazarus was in the grave, he wasn't sinning. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Lazarus sinned after he came out of the grave? Yeah, he probably did. If he didn't, then Scripture would be lying, right? So even though he was resurrected physically, he still had a sinful heart, just as we did. But that whole time, those three days when he was in the grave, those were the most perfect days of his life. Well, his death, technically. (laughs) He couldn't sin. (laughs) But... Isn't that incredible how when we are dead, when we, that's how we get freedom. How many times do we hear stories about someone 
faking their death so they can start a new life. Whether, whether it's to get insurance money or, or maybe they have a huge debt hanging over them. They're like, man, if I fake my death, I can go somewhere else and start a life and I don't have to deal with that anymore. Why? Because in this world, when you, once you've died, you can't punish. I mean, some people have tried to dig up graves and burn body bones, but I guarantee you that person did not feel it some hundred years later. But we can't punish someone who's dead. What do we do? Sometimes we punish the inheritance. But we can't punish the dead person. For he who has died is freed from slavery, freed from sin. So, now, verse 8, if we have died, that's a big question, have we died? Have we come to Christ and said, I am nothing, you are everything? Have we surrendered all? Are we die, have we died with Christ? That's important. If, if we haven't, again, this is an if-then statement. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. He's saying the same thing, just different words. So if, if we believe, then we believe that we shall also live with Him. But that's the key. Are we dead to sin? Have we laid our lives down? Have we crucified the flesh. This is what repentance is about. Spurgeon said this in a really good book of his. About sin, he says, Would you be content if God would forgive your sin and then allow you to be worldly and wicked as before? Oh, no. The quickened spirit is more afraid of sin itself than of the penal results of it. Or the, the penalty. I think I, I would agree. I don't want to live in sin. That doesn't mean that I'll fall into sin. But it's not the penalty that I hate sin. I, God has changed my heart. And that's what we see if you turn to, to Ezekiel 36 which I'm not going to read today, but he says he gives you a new heart and it puts a new spirit in you so that you will walk in all his commandments. That's God's work in us. If we want to live, we have to die first. So if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Because we know, verse 9, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Isn't that a great... That's what he's saying. This is is the basis for this statement in verse 8. Because we know that Christ will never die again, what joy! We're going to... Live with Him. Not just in this life, but in the eternal life. This should bring joy and hope. 
This is even far greater than what those Jamaican slaves felt. Because in Jamaica, there were still problems in their life. There was still racism. There were still troubles. And even after that proclamation of abolition, it took years. There was still slavery in India until the late 1800s, which was a colony of, of Britain. And there was actually slavery in Nigeria until the 1900s, which was also a British colony. And in Ghana, up to the late 1900s, there was slavery, also a British colony. The world, we try to set people free. But God truly sets you free. And that freedom comes with eternal life. It does, our life is in Christ. Why? Because we know that He has not died. He's not going to die again. His death was once for all. And death is no longer a master over him. That's what it says at the end of verse 9. Sin had no mastery over Christ. That's why he was raised from the dead. Perfect, holy, our forerunner. Death is no longer master over him. Why? Verse 10, 4. I told you this before, right? If we see 4, it's typically referring to the previous verse, and it's telling us, it's typically giving us more information describing. For the death he died, that death that Christ died that he'll never have to die again, he died to sin once for all. He does not need to die again and again and again and again. Christ died once for all. We see that theme in Hebrews. It's so clear that up until the time of Christ, what were they doing? They were sacrificing animals every single day for sin. It wasn't a once-for-all situation. It was once every day. But we have a great high priest who has died once for all. His sacrifice was perfect. He was the truly spotless Lamb of God. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Isn't that interesting? He, he died in the flesh, literally. Isn't that interesting? Christ died in the flesh, our forerunner, and he lives to God. He's everything that we need to be. So, in the original language here, it says, 
for though he died, it's like on the one hand he died, but on the other, he lives to God. And we see that again in verse 11. Even so, or in the same way, consider yourselves to be dead to sin on the one hand, but alive to God in Christ Jesus on the other. See that? We're constantly, Paul is constantly drawing us to Christ, to be like Christ in our death and resurrection. So just as Christ died to sin once for all, we are to die to sin once for all. Does that mean, he's not, again, I I want us to be clear, he's talking about not living in sin, in its dominion, its reign. And just as Christ lives for eternity, never will die, so we too are to live and be alive to God in Christ Jesus. I was reading a, a blog by a guy who considers himself loosely a Christian. <laughs> I don't know how you uh, define that. He likes all the Christian terms, the Christianese, but he doesn't like religion. I'm, i got to tell you something. There's only one way. Because this guy, he, he thinks, he thought, you know what? Christ is a good moral teacher. That's not enough. He was either a lunatic or the son of God. There's no in between. Either he's the only way or he's not the way at all. There's no middle ground with Christ. He must be everything or nothing. Because he's going to be one or the other. If you have not died to your sin, have not forsaken, that's what repentance is about, forsaken your old man and its sins, then there's a problem. Why would you not want to get away from that slavery? So are you living to God this morning? Now the third point is, we are to be like Christ. We see this throughout this section. This section, We like Christ, again, I've said this, are to be dead to sin, but to be alive to God through Him. We are no longer to be under the crushing weight of sin and its unyielding task master. What does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. This is the difference. Sin crushes you, destroys you, kills you. 
And we're going to see here in the second half of chapter 6 that we're called to be slaves of righteousness. Now that might sound, well, I'm just trading one slavery for another. No, the difference is Christ is a great master. He is worthy to be served. And that's the thing that the Adam and Eve disbelieved. We kind of talked about that last week. They disbelieved that God had their best interest in mind. And that's the same thing. When we come to Christ, we are alive to God. And He says, come, take my yoke upon me, on you and learn of me. What does He say? My burden is heavy, crushing. Is that what He says? Someone help me. Light. Okay, I, maybe I've got the, I need to get rid of this version because I'm pretty sure it said crushing. Um, no. <laughs> His burden is light. It's not like the the burden of sin that we were under. The chains that were holding us to sin. Christ binds us to Himself. That's why it's so important that we are in Him. That we experience that burial and that resurrection. Without the burial, we can't have the resurrection life, right? Right? That's the new birth. If we have not died to sin, we cannot live to God. So, Paul's made his point. Are we to to continue to sin so that grace may increase? Never. Ever, ever, ever. Because if we're dead to sin, then we're going to be alive to God. We're not going to be making provision for the flesh. We're not going to be making having a storehouse to go back to just in case things don't work out. It's either all of Christ or none of Christ. That's all that I have this morning. And there, there's plenty of application to this. And a lot of this is actually the majority of the application for this we're going to find in the second half of this chapter. How we, how we live to God. But I think one response that we can have today, and I know that this has been a, a response the last couple of weeks, but is rejoicing. If we cannot rejoice in what Christ has done, the slavery that we have been set free from, then we don't get it. I sincerely doubt that there was a single Afro-Jamaican slave on August 1st, 1938, or not 18, 1838, who said, nah, no big deal. I'm just, I'm just going to stay at the, in the slave quarters, you know, eat my food and go out in the field. You think any of them did that? Not willingly. They were probably rejoicing. They were probably singing some of the, the hymns and, and just rejoicing. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded, we're not slaves anymore. Stop acting like slaves. Stop walking around like your life is terrible. Yes, there may be difficulties, and we have experienced a lot here. But we shouldn't be living that way anymore. We've been set free we don't need to live like the world is ending. 
It is. It's coming closer and closer and in. But our life isn't. We have eternal life. We are in the resurrection of Christ, and He is never going to die again. So if the world ends, guess what? Eternity with Christ. What could be better? So let's rejoice today and rejoice always in what Christ has delivered us from. Don't go back into bondage. Don't go back to the plantation of sin. There's nothing for you there but bondage. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. I don't know if Dad has some songs or anything. Father, I thank you for the grace that you showed us. Showed me specifically, Lord, that I was so wicked and so enslaved to sin. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us be reminded of our slavery only, Lord, to remind us of your great love for us, your great grace that was poured out for us, and that it would call us to holy, righteous living. Lord, you haven't called us to be like the world. You've called us to be like Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be like him. Father, we need your presence. We need you daily. And help us, Lord, to crucify the flesh daily. To come before you, find our hope and peace and joy in you. Lord, we need you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.